This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For May 19th, 2022, it's the More Fetterman edition I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, delightfully, as ever, by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning. Hello, John. Hello, and good morning, David, on a rainy morning in New York. And from New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, David and John. So glad to be here. This week on the GabFest, what is the great replacement theory and how dangerous is it? Then John Fetterman wins, Madison Cawthorn loses. What did we learn from Tuesday's primaries? Then who or what is really to blame for the infant formula shortage? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And we have an incredibly exciting announcement. An exciting, exciting announcement. It's so exciting, which is that we're doing a live show. We're back with live shows on June 29th. Join us in Washington, D.C. at 6th and I for the first live GabFest in person since the pandemic. There will also be a special cocktail hour for a limited number of guests. Go to slate.com slash GabFest live right now to get your tickets for the show, for the cocktail hour. Slate Plus members, you get an exclusive discount too, uh, but great prices for everyone. We cannot wait to see you at 6th and I on June 29th. And if you can't make it to DC, you can also watch it live virtually. So get that experience as well. Are you guys as excited about this as I am? Oh my God, yes. I couldn't be more excited. Ah, just kidding, I'm incredibly excited. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you for the sound effects, John. All right, slate.com slash Live. Go get your tickets now. We cannot wait to see you on June 29th. The mass shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo by a shooter animated by racism and by a theory that has enthralled much of the American right wing has horrified and just saddened so many of us. This is, of course, the the nth version of this. Yet another young, angry, disaffected white man who commits a horrific act uh, against people of color motivated by terrible for terrible reasons. So, Emily, what is the great replacement theory that we've heard so much about it? And what is its grip on the Republican Party? So this is a theory that um, somebody in a conspiracy, sometimes Jews, are plotting to replace the current majority white population of the United States with a majority non-white population. This shooter was obsessed with black people. Um, So it's, you know, virulently racist And the grip, so this is the part that I find kind of heartbreaking, but also I feel so at a loss about what is really a good way to address it. You know, I think there is a lot of just like racism and fear threaded through this. I think there's also a sense that the country is changing in a way that um, some white people who feel dispossessed, feel alienated, feel like they're being left behind are just incredibly angry about and obviously, the um, the idea of this replacement theory is something to be condemned. At the same time, I feel like we're having another dividing line in American culture in which 
by condemning it, we're also telling people that they are on the outs, unacceptable in some way that I worry then ends up feeding more of this. John, why do you think this is be- why do you think this is so powerful a thread within the Republican Party? Because it obviously is is something that that is talked about either explicitly or very much like talked about without saying the words replacement theory. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the theory starts in France, right? So and the idea is that immigrants are going to replace white French people. So there's a but and the reason I point that out is that you have a there's a basic human threat that is being accessed here, which is other people are getting stuff and you and your um, descendants are going to be pushed out. The sense of diminished status is one of the strongest and most powerful uh, movers in in political psychology. And so um, it's a kind of natural human issue. Then in the United States, there has always been a conservative connection between the idea. It's not just blacks and Jews. It's anybody who represents anything that's going to kick out the legs from under this American life that you've been promised and attack your status. And so that's been a traditional part of conservative politics, the threat to status, the notion that pluralism is a danger. What's different is that there are so many people who are willing to play footsie with it and say, well, this person at the very, 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 very far fringe goes too far but then essentially embrace and allow conversation in the next chamber over. The number three leader in the House Republicans talking about how Democrats are on uh, a systemic effort to replace white voters with uh, with immigrants for electoral purposes. Tucker Carlson says this all the time. And that's just straight up politics, which is to scare the bejesus out of your voters. And the way they do it is by saying your life will be changed by these people who are other than you. Right. I mean, so it's always been there, this, this strain of nativism and, and the kind of minority of people who have the strain of hateful nativism has always been there. But it's taken the complicity of Republic, some Republican politicians and the accelerant of conservative media and the accelerant of anonymous Internet media to make it grow. It's really scary when you read about this particular shooter, accused shooter, and then some of the people who preceded him, how much of what seems to have watered them, have have fertilized their soil is this, you know, the 4chan, 8chan and their successors uh, and and the the nastiness that lurks in the in this uh, fetid swamp of the dark Internet. So the dark Internet is in every single one of these cases because of the way in which people anonymously communicate and they say the worst things and they find each other and there are no barriers to doing that. What do you think about the facts here, the way in which the country is changing so that we're becoming, uh, you know, not right this minute, but in the next decades, a majority minority country? I mean, when you think about the idea that diversity is a strength of America's, how do we convince people who are questioning that right now to see it in the way that the country has it's, it's better nature has always been able to celebrate it, right? That we've come from all these different places, that what we do is bring people together, that there's a lot of struggle and difficulty that goes into that, but we don't reject the whole premise. There, you know, there's a way in which people like the shooter are just rejecting the whole premise, and we are only going to become a more diverse country. And 
if we can't figure out some way to continue to celebrate that, we're not going to be able to, we're not going to make this transition to being a place that has equal rights and democracy, but also has even more diversity than we have now. Right. I think the best version of what, what America has had is this idea that America is for those who choose it, that, that, and this has been something that's united a lot of a lot of people on the left and right, and I, one thing I always liked about the neocons, the neocons always, they're where they took the the where they took this was a little bit not where I would go, but it was always very much that this is this is a country for anyone who comes and wants to share in its values and be part of its values. It's for anyone like that, and that was a that's a beautiful idea, and it's a beautiful you know when you hear an Arnold Schwarzenegger talk about uh, what America means to him, it really is animated by. This notion, and I think what's different and what's happened is this notion: that there's less to go around, and that certain people are not worthy to share in this. And that's and that's a that's a alarming thought that that some people are worthy, but a lot of you aren't because of where you come from, or what your background is, or what skin color you have, or what your educational background is. Um, it's yeah. It's also in politics, it's changed. There used to be an idea that you had to capture some larger group of people in the middle. And you did that effectively by raising the flag, you know, literally talking about American exceptionalism, what made the country great. And oftentimes the people in the middle, you might have been trying to grab ethnic voters. And so you might talk about the melting pot in a way that brought them into the American dream. But in any event, you were trying to capture a people, a group of voters in the middle. And so you sang from that hymnal to try and grab a bunch of people. Now, a lot of politics you know, some people would argue all politics is is driven by negative emotion. This isn't the first time it's happened. We've already talked about that. It's not a new thing, but it's the extent to which it is the only thing. So if you're looking around for only negative things, this is a very, very, very powerful one. And there's no incentive in a lot of cases to talk about the positive thing, which is the vision um, that that you talked about, David. Um, we should also notice the note the context here. I mean, President Trump, after the debate in which um, he didn't denounce white supremacists, uh, had to be told three times by Republican leaders that that's something you want to do. The marchers, the neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville, said they were doing it in Donald Trump's name as the promise and fulfillment of his election. They were screaming, Jews will not replace us. Um, this is a, uh, this is goes, this is um, kind of knit into this moment for the Republican Party, um, largely uh, connected with, with President Trump and what he started even before that with Barack Obama. What was the attack of birtherism about? It was the idea that in the American caste system, there must be something that went wrong or some trick or some sneaky thing that allowed this black politician to become president because it's antithetical to the system that that uh, that exists and therefore there must be some trickery because it's an affront to this, uh, the normal ways things are supposed to be done. That's in this same ugly stew pot. This is what makes me feel so hopeless about it because... You know, the only way to contain this is to make it, to separate it out, right? To kind of treat it as like a cancer that we're all, almost everyone is going to reject. And instead, the Republican Party is doing the opposite. And then it starts to feel like, well, okay, if if this is the dividing line, then you're leaving a lot of people on the other side, right? I mean, we have multiple... Kind of, 
deep dividing lines right now. We have this idea, the this horrible replacement theory. We have the idea of denying that the 2020 election results are legitimate. Um, and then we have some other fight about COVID. And each of these things is incredibly divisive. And instead of feeling like the polls would show that, you know, 10 to 20 percent of Americans um, thought the election was illegitimate or think it's OK to talk about um, this idea that the country becoming more diverse is bad. We have something like you one starts to worry that it's more like 40 or 45 or even 50 percent. And then that just is terrifying. Well, you're the the real problem in all three instances that you mentioned is that it it feels increasingly the case that there is no idea worth defending if in so doing you give sucker to your enemies. So uh, and 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 giving sucker to your enemies is the absolute thing you don't want to do. So if that means not standing up for the truth about the 2020 election, okay, well, I won't. If that means not standing up and saying this is objectionable, the notion of replacement theory and using it to to drive votes uh, is against uh, the traditions of America's um, greatness, not going to do it if it adds sucker to the other side. And yeah, so that's where we are. The, I mean, the, also, John, just the very language you just used, that word enemies, American politics for most of the 20th century was not about enemies. You didn't have enemies in politics. You had rivals, you had opponents, you had people who had different views, and sometimes the, the d- disagreements were extremely heated. I'm not saying they, that, that it was all, uh, you know, candy and, and, and uh, brightly colored shoelaces in, in 1953. But it's, it was not, it was a, it was a, sense of a shared there was a sense of a shared journey we were all on together I, one, so a lot of people were left out of the journey a, a lot right. of people, no, were left out, a lot of people were, of course <laughs> yeah. of course a lot of people were left out of the journey but it was you know the political class did act in in you know, unity for the most part and the Pew surveys that they've been taking since 1994 show this, which is that a greater number of people in both parties view the other side, not just as the opponents, but the enemies. In 1996, Bob Dole, at his convention speech, made a uh, special uh, detour in his speech to say that he considered Clinton his opponent, not his enemy. And why did he do that? Because, again, of those voters in a middle that existed that he wanted to show that he had. And oh, by the way, also in that speech, he said anybody who would... Um, uh, you know, uh, support racist views, uh, you know, the, the exits are clearly marked and leave the room. Um, that was a way in which an entire convention speech, the biggest moment for a candidate, arguably, in m- putting forward a message. Those are at least two instances in which the, Bob Dole said something that um, are com- would seem uh, completely at odds with the current Republican Party or might be said by somebody who would then be primaried and lose or uh, never heard from again. Right. But you also feel that actually in 2012, Mitt Romney could have said that and it would have been fine. Mitt Rom- but Mitt, Mitt Romney couldn't get within a thousand miles of the Republican nomination just 10 years later. The one one small final point I, I want to make actually about this majority minority question around the country. I don't know. It's so hard to talk about. It's so hard. to And it's so hard. You can you can hear us struggling to talk about this in a way that Tucker Carlson does not struggle to talk about it. And that's an issue. And also we should just, uh, I mean, I don't know what you guys think about the causal arrow, but I think it's a mistake when, I think it's important to clarify that, that um, this particular shooter and any individual shooters motivations um, 
you know, drawing the line back to what motivates them is highly dangerous and requires a lot of leaps of logic. But what is absolutely true is that the replacement theory that he wrote about in his deranged screed has a lot of similarities to what Tucker Carlson has said out loud and been applauded for by his viewers uh, in terms of a systemic effort by liberals to replace whites with people of color. So even if so, Tucker Carlson is essentially saying you can't blame me for this crazy person. And that's a distinct issue from whether the things you say are the same as this crazy person. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. You get member exclusive episodes from shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. You get no ads on any Slate podcasts. Our bonus segment today, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about, in particular, Clarence Thomas's comments that the Supreme Court has, is uh, like a marriage which has had infidelity in it. The loss of trust within the court is terrible, and Thomas is upset about it. We have talked a lot in recent weeks about the primary thicket. This week brought us some more interesting results. Madison Cawthorn, the uh, extremely problematic North Carolina member of Congress, will be out of the House of Representatives, thank goodness, replaced by a just run-of-the-mill, extremely conservative gentleman from Western North Carolina. Republicans in Pennsylvania nominated a full-on election saboteur in Doug Mastriano for governor. He could be incredibly dangerous if he wins that gubernatorial race. And most interestingly, probably for Democrats, is that John Fetterman, who is the most visually charismatic candidate in a long time, he is visually charismatic. He also has an amazing voice, so he is also orally charismatic. He won the Pennsylvania Democratic Senate primary and will face either Dr. Oz or uh, a hedge fund, hedge fundy guy named David McCormick, who are still locked in a close race. So, John, it was a real, real mixed bag of a week with Trumpists winning some places, the Pennsylvania Republican race in ambiguity. What to your mind was the most important result or what, what, what comes out of this that you're interested in? Well, the one is the, the thing you put your first, your finger on at first, which is Doug Mastriano, Trump endorsed subpoenaed by the January 6th committee uh, to testify. I mean, so in other words, not just an election denier, but a full-on believer in uh, the mission to overthrow the election on January 6th. Okay, so now he's the Republican nominee in Pennsylvania. And just to remind you that the, the leading Republicans for governor in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin all crucial, crucial battleground states have either directly called for overturning the 2020 election in their states or refused to say what is plainly true, that the election was uh, correctly decided in favor of Joe Biden. Um, by the way, in Pennsylvania, there have been, AP uh, did an analysis, I think the number is 26 cases of fraud in the entire presidential vote, and some of those are Republicans committing fraud. So that's the most important thing, because that'll matter in 2024. So then the other thing that's interesting is that in the Senate race, Dr. Oz versus David, uh, Dave McCormick, it's neck and neck. And you have all of the things that re that many Republicans and President Trump in particular uh, seized on uh, the late quote unquote, surge of ballots, um, all the normal things that come as a part of counting votes are taking place in this Senate race. 
Um, and they're the normal part of counting votes that happens in close elections. And both the candidates, by the way, at the moment anyway, um, uh, Oz and McCormick are behaving the way adults do in elections that are close, which is basically saying, let every vote be counted uh, and we'll go from there. And so you have this obvious normal thing that's happening in a close election, but which Donald Trump weaponized and built an entire modern party around weaponizing, um, which is using the doubt that attends any election and trying to turn it into something evil and nefarious. Anyway, so those are two of the things. One other thing I would just say is that Pat McCrory, who's running for Senate in North Carolina, lost to Ted Budd. Um, uh, McCrory was the former North Carolina governor, Charlotte mayor. He should have been you know, in an, in a previous version of the Republican Party, a shoe in, but he had criticized Trump. Um, and so uh, it was it's another instance in which somebody can get run out of the party for being called a rhino um, in a way that, um, you know, is important to watch in some of these races. I hate to be such a downer this morning, but I just feel like this is one more indication that we're on the brink. I mean, I, I think I take Pennsylvania especially personally because I grew up there and my family lives there. But the idea the Pennsylvania already has a Republican controlled legislature. And so the idea that we're now one office away from someone who has all of the beliefs and attributes you just laid out has also promised to enact various right wing priorities, including banning abortion. Like that's where we are. And it, it, we don't know whether the Democratic nominee Josh Shapiro is going to win that election or not. And a key thing to watch, one of the things that I wrote about in my book and that's been around for a while is that when you see the primaries get more and more ideological in both parties, but clearly it's been uh, overwhelming the case in Republican parties, what happens is it leads to the overall poisoning of our politics because you have the primaries which are run by the most extreme version of the party. And so that picks a party nominee. And then garden variety Republicans who don't necessarily even participate in primaries see that in a general election, oh, it's a Republican versus a Democrat. I vote for the Republican because that's what I do, because m most people in general elections just pick the party. And so they go, OK, I'm voting for the Republican, which in this case is somebody who's been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. So you have a kind of one two punch, the extremism of the primaries matched with kind of unthinking partisan voting in the general, which means the key thing to watch is, does the Republican Party rally around Doug Mastriano, even though he has these objectionable views, which put him on the absolute fringe, most fringy fringe, nevertheless, kind of he slips into the systemic impulses of the system and that and that carries him forward. And yeah, Josh Shapiro is now, I think Cook, the Cook political report changed the rating of the race um, to make it lean Democrat from toss up. Um, so, you know, there's... At the moment, it looks like Shapiro might have a shot. But, you know, a lot of people laughed at, at Donald Trump in 16 as well. Uh, there are a lot of forces bouncing around that people can't predict. Emily, let's talk about John Fetterman, who is enthralling. He is a million feet tall. He has this wonderful tattoos. He wears shorts everywhere. He's an awesome voice. He's this interesting set of kind of cross-cuttingness. So on the one hand, extremely progressive Sanders supporter, there's this worry that he's going to get weak support from Pennsylvania's black voters who are 10 percent of the electorate, but really important for Democratic turnout because of uh, an incident he had where he he confronted a black person with a gun when he was the mayor of what is it, Braddock, Pennsylvania? Is that the name? Yeah, I mean, so he pulled a gun on a jogger because he had heard shots in the neighborhood. But also there's this kind of potential crossover from your Margaritaville Republicans who want 
weed and good vibes like everybody else. I don't know. What do you make of him? He's, 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 he's so fun. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing I really am interested in is this idea that if you have high entertainment value, I mean, this is like different than Donald Trump or, you know, Dr. Oz, who Trump picked out because he was a television personality. But it is the same idea that being larger than life and charismatic and having these attributes that are not directly tied to politics, they're your persona, that that's what actually can turn on voters, um, that, you know, you can have fans as opposed to supporters, and that can be a lot of your appeal. I'm not sure I think this is, like, a great way for politics to be proceeding. Um, It's not very sober. It doesn't suggest gravitas. It doesn't necessarily mean that the people who John would think are the best prepared for office, based on all of the, you know, incredibly thoughtful questions you would ask, are going to come to the fore. And yet, in our age of social media and, you know, this sort of media attention that craves what appears to be authenticity, right? These, you know, quick, casual, supposedly intimate glimpses we give where we want to see all the real person. This feels pretty inevitable to me. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, politics has always had this mix. You got to have some charisma. And, and I think this Fetterman links to what you've always said, David, which I think is quite right, which is whichever side is having more fun is the side that is going to do well. I don't know if that actually holds to be true across the, um, like, I don't think of Mitch McConnell as, as having quote unquote fun. I mean, I think he has a a high degree of his own kind of fun, but it doesn't map with general consensus and he's been hugely successful. So, and particularly successful in this realm. But anyway, Fetterman is, is a, as you've been describing him, fun and um i think that for particularly for a democratic party that is in the doldrums uh 10 different ways um including we should mention one uh because of the redistricting of new york districts you may very well have the chairman of the democratic campaign committee congressional campaign committee sitting house congressman challenging another democrat in uh who happens to be a first term uh congressman member of the squad like there's a massive fight in the leadership of the House while the House is looks almost certainly like it's going to go towards the Republicans. So just to give you a sense of how screwed the, the Democrats are, and this is a c- candidate who seems to be able to run apart from that overall bad n- national environment. Can we pour one out for Madison Cawthorn? No, actually not really. But no. They, but Madison, there are a lot of people with personality disorders in politics these days especially at the far ends of politics, especially in, in Republican politics. I, Cawthorn is the only one who seems to have actually paid a price for that. You don't see Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, who also are people who I think you would not want to like be parents at your kid's school, uh, uh, continuing to thrive in their career. You see Donald Trump continuing to thrive in his career. What is it about Cawthorn, John, that, that, made even Western North Carolina Republicans who are not the most liberal bunch out there say enough, enough, enough. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, you, the simple uh, and maybe easiest way to think about it. Um, well, first of all, Cawthorn was beaten by a 61 year old state Senator. Um, and He's a he's a McDonald's franchise owner and head of the lo- local chamber of commerce. Like he's a he's not an objectionable um, uh, candidate. So there was they had some you can't beat 
something with nothing and they had way more than nothing. They had a real candidate. Um, I think that, but to get to your original question, Cawthorn said all these things about Republicans that embarrassed them, um, which is crazy because lying about an election um, will make you leader of the party, uh, which is a crazy thing to say. And saying lots and lots of other crazy things are part of what many Trump supporters say is his special skill. And yet uh, there are some things, if you say it about Republicans, um, that will get you in trouble. And it feels like his claim about the orgy parties and um, and because he was talking about his colleagues maybe was what caused the problem. The minute I say, you know, the accumulation of embarrassing gaffes and incendiary moments, that's like the ticket to stardom for other members of the party. So I guess the only thing that makes him different is that he claimed private behavior by Republicans that made them embarrassed. The infant formula shortage has stressed out parents across the country. There are 4 million infants in the U.S., by my calculation, but 4 million people who are one year or less. It's also, this formula shortage has created a wonderful new set of potential attack ads for Republicans, and it's cast a light on a very curious food business. And President Biden on Wednesday invoked the Defense Production Act to prioritize formula production so that companies that make formula have to put their formula orders ahead of other things that they might make that were ahead of it in line. So they might make yogurt, but instead they've got to use their line to make formula and also to make it easier to bring formula that meets U.S. specs into the U.S. uh, by plane. So commissioning commercial airliners to fly some of that formula into the U.S. So, Emily, why is there a shortage of infant formula in the U.S.? The immediate cause of the shortage is a recall of a lot of product from Abbott Laboratories, which is one of the four companies that um, makes baby formula in the United States. And they had some real problems at one of their um, production facilities. There was bacteria. Babies got sick. Two babies actually died. Um, And so it has taken some time for the federal government to allow that facility to come back online. There also are supply chain problems because of the pandemic, kind of familiar frustration in our times. And then I think, as you said, this is a curious business and it's regulated in these very specific ways. You have tariffs on formula from other countries and a lot of rules, very specific nitpicky rules about things like labeling. So we don't really have foreign producers of baby formula that are major sellers here. And then you have the... um, involvement of WIC, which is the really important federal program for making sure that low-income babies get food they need. But it, as I understand it, has also created regulations that then um, have created this situation where you only have these four producers. You have an incredibly concentrated industry. And so one recall by one producer had this huge effect because of these underlying conditions. There are more than four producers. Four producers control 90% of the market. And and there are some up-and-coming producers, including one that just does organic formula. And and I was talking to somebody who who worked with this up-and-coming producer, and they said it's so the business is essentially two things. Can we secure an adequate amount of milk to make our formula from? So do we have the supplies of cow milk that we can then turn into the formula? That's one thing. But the main thing is just the it's a regulation business. It's spending an enormous amount of time and energy getting. FDA approval. And once you formulate it, 
It's great. You can get on the shelves. Awesome. But any tiny little thing you want to do to that formula, you have to go through this whole FDA approval process again. And so it's, it's enormously difficult. And you, and you have this, this situation where formulas that are approved in Europe are not allowed in here. And there has to be, I mean, we, it is, it's crazy that there isn't some kind of what's it, what's it called? Uh, when you reciprocity? have reciprocity, yeah, reciprocity that here you have, you have a, a regulatory agency in a country and we, we can certify that their regulatory agency knows what it's doing and they certify this formula is okay. It's crazy that there isn't some system for allowing that kind of formula into the United States in a time like this and for allowing our formula into, into their markets at a time like this. Forbes had a good story about the company by heart, which took five years to try to, um, it was the first the first company, the first new manufacturer of baby formula in 15 years, and it took the company five years to get everything in place to be able to do it. We should mention that the reason that there is a lot of this uh, scrutiny from the FDA is that there's nothing more, um, I mean, that that it's a safety issue. They may have it, that, that there's not only the danger of common bacteria that regular adults can live through, but that infants and newborns can't, that you have to try to, um, some of which, as I understand it, can get into the formula even when you at, when it's at home and you just first open it. So that, it, that it's highly difficult to, to keep it safe and clean. And then there's also all of these, uh, all of the requirements in terms of the kinds of vitamins and proteins and all these other things that have to be in there, all of which is supposed to be for the health of the baby. It might go too far, but there's... Um, when you're talking about the life of newborns, innocent babies, that's a particularly fraught situation, which is which we see in Abbott closing down their plant when there was this, you know, when the FDA found its ruling, which Abbott, by the way, doesn't agree with. They don't say there's a direct causation between the deaths and their product. I mean, fraud is the word. Fraud is the word in all of this, because feeding a child under any circumstances is an extraordinarily emotional thing. Like as a parent, the most important thing you have is you have to make your child, you know, your child has to be nourished. You have to give your child food and shelter and love and protection. And the idea that you can't do it or that you can't do it in the way you want is terrifying. And, and this is for infants and it's, it's all the more so for infants. And then it's tied up with this, with the extremely complex and often personal and nasty politics around breastfeeding where people who are feeding their children formula often feel and often are judged by other people for not breastfeeding their their children and that's a that is itself a, a kind of like deeply complicated issue that I'm Emily I know that you surely have have thought about uh, as a as a mother when you had little children and certainly I thought about when I had little children. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, and the politics are so class-based or at least the realities of people's lives, why they choose to breastfeed or not, whether it even really is a choice has so much to do with the circumstances of whether you're home, whether you have the kind of job that allows you to pump, what kind of support you have. Um, I mostly just, now that my kids are older, you know, I don't really have to, think about these politics that much anymore. But in the wake of this um, shortage of formula, there have been a lot of pieces that I think have righteously been denouncing bullying about breastfeeding, which I think is like really important to push back on because it's very hard for people who want to breastfeed and can't figure out how to do it for any number of reasons, um, sometimes health related, sometimes based on their employment, all kinds of things. The bullying, I think, is toxic. On the other hand, 
there are also places in which people don't breastfeed because they just feel kind of intimidated by it. They don't have the support to do it. Um, and breastfeeding can be really wonderful for people. So I never know how to quite strike the balance in talking about it that just allows for multiple possibilities without making people feel like one is better. But it's a situation in which you have this acute idiosyncratic reason for the shortage, but there's not that much conversation, and there certainly wasn't during the debate over family and medical leave, about the systems that would be put in place. We're seeing and talking about this now because it's hit, this calamity has hit a group in aggregate. But in under regular times, people who don't have family medical leave, all of the other things that make it harder to breastfeed should you want to, all of those systems that don't exist in American life hit these families individually. It's just it's not enough to make a political uproar over it. So when we had the debate about family medical leave, which disappeared, this is that's a contributor to what is happening right now and the conditions we're now discussing because it's this acute situation. How effective will this be as a political issue for Republicans? Will Biden or the Democrats pay a political price for it? The shortage will pass by the time the election comes around. So I don't think anyone's going to be concentrating on it. I think the Dickerson theory, if I can channel the Dickerson theory, is always anytime that you're distracted from the things you want to be talking about, it's it's bad for you. And so Democrat, this is a thing which Democrats now have to talk about, which is distracting them from something. But it's not clear to me that there is anything Democrats actually want to be talking about right now. So it's not clear that this is distracting them from something that they could be talking about, that they'd be enthusiastic to talk about. So I'm not sure that this is any worse than the inflation or than the war in Ukraine or than all the other, you know, all the other things that are not going so well. The gas prices. It's not like it's not like talking about this is worse than talking about gas prices. Well, exactly. We got to get we got to get past this baby formula shortage so we can make everybody concentrate on the high gas price and inflation problems. Yeah. No, I mean, you've correctly articulated it. By the way, gas prices were above four dollars in every state for the first time this week. Um, And the market is uh, is tanking, which um, we know there is a deep disconnect between the health of the economy and the and the movements of the stock market, on the other hand, it does take up a large share of our public brain. So it's not good for any administration when the stock market is plunging. It may be impossible for a modern political party um, to do this, but there is a counter argument here that Democrats were they either led by a single voice, if that's possible in American politics right now, or if they had a kind of a same hymnal that they all rushed to that could make the case for Biden's signature legislation. I mean, Build Back Better had a lot of these protections, uh, not protections so much with respect to baby formula, but um, put systems in place that would make people less vulnerable. So if the point of this acute crisis is that everybody is now concerned about the vulnerable uh, and those who are um, affected by shocks in the system, hey, let's put in place a system that um, helps people and allows them to make choices so they're less vulnerable to the shocks in the system. Like some politician could try and make that argument. Um, Republicans have a, are, are much better at taking new information and filling it into the Mad Libs that is their campaign themes. So they made this immediately about immigration. The federal government is compelled to send baby formula to nourish those who have uh, uh, migrants who've come over and are being processed. And so Republicans are saying Joe Biden's chosen to feed the, um, you know, the hordes at the border and not our own children. Um, So that, you know, they've found a way to channel this right into their existing set of themes. Um, Democrats have a harder time doing that. Let's go to cocktail chatter. I don't understand why I have not been drinking this, only this for my entire life, which is vermouth 
on ice with a slice of lemon or a slice of orange. It is the most refreshing drink that has ever been created. Everyone should be drinking it all the time. I was on a no drinking vow post my vacation, but I couldn't stick to it because it, it was so refreshing. You couldn't stick anyway. to it because of the weight of modern events. Yeah, there's some of that too. All right, what's your chatter, John? Hey, U.S. women's soccer and men's soccer are going to get paid the same. They uh, reached a landmark agreement that um, means that women will get paid what the men do, same salaries, bonuses, and they'll pool the prize money from the World Cup um, and share TV revenue. Um, This has taken six years. It's a huge win in a show that has been basically all about backsliding and lack of progress. Uh, This is a sign of progress. It's good. Although, arguably, the women should get paid a lot more because they are so much better than our men. Both more entertaining and actually better. Yeah. Uh, Emily, what's your chatter? I am going to bring us down to a less pleasant earth (laughs) just to round out the show. I want to recommend a piece by Patricia Campos Mello about how uh, President Bolsonaro in Brazil has teamed up with Google and Facebook to um, end the chances of an effort, uh, some legislation that would have taken on big tech in Brazil. So this was an effort to try to do some social media reform, um, make the social media companies pay for some journalism um, along the lines that Australia also tried. And um, what's really amazing about this piece is the kind of fakery that Google and Facebook, according to um, Patricia, engaged in um, on their sites, saying that, you know, basically, like, all these terrible things are going to happen. If this bill passes, you won't be able to find the news you want. This is going to harm small businesses, just things that were basically lies, um, as far as I can tell. And what's interesting about this is the way in which Facebook and Google behave outside of the United States and maybe Europe, right? There's less attention internationally in Western media markets to what shenanigans they engage in in Brazil. And so, you can see the lengths they're willing to go to to torpedo reform. So this piece by Patricia is um, up on the Pointer Institute website. And we should note that that Bolsonaro's victory, many people argue, was totally the result of misinformation, disinformation on social media. And when he won, the uh, his supporters who support his fascist uh approach were chanting Facebook and WhatsApp, um, arguing that that allowed them to kind of create this grassroots thing. But um, what a lot of people would say, it, it, it allowed him to use uh, misinformation to get elected. Right. Unholy alliance. Thank you for adding that. My chatter, uh, two, two quick ones. One, I saw the, the sort of a distillation of Gen X childhood that was pure giddiness. It was a little, I guess it's a YouTube thing. I saw it around on on Twitter, which is somebody cut the dirty dancing climactic scene of Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey and the the big dance to Time of My Life. And they cut it to the Muppet Show theme song. (laughs) And it is is just pure giddiness. And as as children of Gen X, these are two, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And imagine Patrick Swayze cut it shimmying to that. Why don't we get things started? Why don't the, you get, get started? things started? Uh, <laughs> on the Muppet Show. T- yeah, it was it was great. Those are two wonderful uh, pieces of our childhood. And to have them smashed up together in this giddy way was, was joy. 
The other thing is I just finished watching um, uh, Band of Brothers. I know I'm the latest person. I know it's 20 years late. But my goodness, what a great show. If you haven't seen Band of Brothers, it's an HBO show. It's 10 episodes about this unit that fought, a paratroop unit that fought its way from Normandy to uh, Germany. And it's just a story of their fighting. It's a, it's a lot of men, a lot of white men at war. But uh, if you don't like white men at war, you will not like it. But it's really, really, really good and compelling and beautifully done. So check it out. Listeners, you have given us excellent chatters, excellent, excellent chatters. You tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest, and you email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. And this week's chatter comes from Dylan Bindman. Hello, GabFest. This is Dylan Bindman from St. Paul, Minnesota. My cocktail chatter this week is a video article on Vox called Who Made These Circles in the Sahara? The video explores these mysterious, perfectly shaped circles deep in the Sahara that are easily visible on Google Earth. No one seemed to know what these circles were or how they got there. The video documents each step of solving the mystery and also shows the reporting process from the inside out. In addition to a satisfying answer to the mystery, you also get a feel for the complicated and unexpected path that journalism can take. Awesome. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast operations. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president for podcasting at Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at at SlateGapFest and tweet your chatter to us there. And please come to our live show June 29th at 6th and I in Washington, D.C. Go to slate.com slash gabfestlive to get your tickets. And also, you can, if you can't make it to D.C., you can stream it, too, that night. So slate.com slash gabfestlive. We really want to see you there. For Emily and John and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? We're a big, happy family on Slate Plus. Here at the Slate Plus in the, the Basilon, under the Basilon court of Slate Plus. <laughs> Chief but the Justice previous era, Bazelon. the previous court was so much better. That the was previous the craziest was so much thing better. that Justice Thomas said. Sorry, we're backing yeah. into this topic. Okay, let's back into the topic. So, Emily, um, what has happened to the big happy family that's the Supreme Court? Justice Thomas this week in a speech to a conservative group, because, of course, uh, said that the leak of the Alito draft opinion about uh, that would overturn Roe v. Wade is like an infidelity in a marriage. It can never be forgotten. I guess it could be it'd be forgiven but not forgotten. Perhaps is that what he said? And there's no longer the comedy and decency and and uh, get alongness that characterized the the Rehnquist court. So it's interesting that he would say that the Rehnquist court was so good because they lost a lot more. He lost lots of lost all the time on the Rehnquist court. Now he's winning all the time, but he's unhappier about a workplace. But what do you make of of Justice Thomas's complaints about his workplace? He's really pissed off at Chief Justice John Roberts. That's what I got out of that, because he specifically said this was a different court 11 years ago. And that means that he is talking about the switch in chief justices and the way he thinks that that's affected the court, the sort of mark of different eras. And it's really hard to know without some more information whether his complaint is about procedural or substantive choices that Roberts is making, right? I mean, he could be frustrated that Roberts isn't voting with the conservatives, and this is his way of taking it, of expressing that. But it also just makes you think there's some internal dynamics beyond this leak that we don't fully understand yet. What's 
really shocking to me is I think we're going to understand them. Like, I think the court is starting to leak like a sieve. Uh, you see that in the Wall Street Journal. You see that in some reporting in the Washington Post. And it just suggests to me that we are on the verge of a court that doesn't keep its secrets the way we are accustomed to it doing. I can't really tell if Thomas is as truly outraged about that as he professes to be, because we don't know who the leakers are. They're all professing to be outraged about that. And yet it was, and we don't even know that they know who the leaker was, even if it was someone in their own chambers. So it's possible all of that is perfectly um, being uttered in good faith. But there is just something about the institution that is off in terms of its known norms. I guess one question I have for you guys is, is this just, is this a bad thing? Like if the Supreme Court is lurching far away from public opinion and in a rightward direction, which we have significant evidence for, is it fine and dandy that we're seeing some cracks in the facade of the institution? Like, why should we assume that it's better to kind of defend the integrity of the court as an institution at a moment in which it may be affecting American life in ways that a lot of Americans don't want? Well, uh, I'll give the uh, institutionalist argument. It's a really interesting question for me because an institution that has respect but doesn't deserve it is an incredibly dangerous thing because a it doesn't deserve it and it 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 foments something Donald Trump was incredibly successful at taking advantage of which is the gap between kind of what people say and the way we know it really is and in that gap grows mistrust and then grows the appetite for somebody who knows the way things really are and says to hell with you and your public um myths that everybody else is benefiting from, but you guys are getting screwed by not breaking through. So it's bad to have this pretend um, uh, institutional integrity if it doesn't really exist. On the other hand, with all institutions and norms and the normal guardrails that um, or, st or, or structures that allow us to um, argue out public questions, with all those disappearing you kind of don't want another one to disappear um, because there should be a wall somewhere where people, where there's a limit. Um, and if you, if everything's up for grabs at the Supreme court, then you really have no limits in any of the branches. Um, and that seems, uh, that seems more chaos. I apologize for the car alarm here, by the way. I, yeah, I'm with you, John. I mean, normally I, I, I get annoyed by the cloistered uh, priesthood aspects of the Supreme court, but I don't think that Thomas is completely off base. I don't think it's a great thing to have protests at Supreme Court Justice's house or anyone's house. I actually kind of agree with people about that. Uh, I do think it's bad that this draft opinion leaked. I do believe that the kind of niceties of and the formalities of the court are probably valuable. And I don't know that we've reached the point where the court has no, you know, has no uh, respectability. I mean, even I who disagree with a lot of the opinions, I still really want a, I want the, 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 the mechanisms that preserve this institution to stay in place uh, because I think in the long run, our country is more likely to thrive if, the, if these institutions have some prestige and they have some civility and they, they, behave with a kind of dignity and the loss of dignity is I didn't realize how much a big deal dignity is to to actually maintaining the norms that you need for democratic government and republican government to exist. 
So I'm just really torn about this. I mean, I hear those arguments. On the other hand, as someone who thinks about the court a lot, I am looking at a world in which it is likely to do a lot of things that are going to essentially roll back um, rights, civil rights, individual rights for a lot of Americans. And it's likely to do that in a way that is seriously out of step with um, the American public. We may be looking at an era that's a lot like what's called the Lochner era, um, which, you know, depending on how you slice it, lasted from the early um, 1900s until the court finally just kind of caved and approved some of FDR's New Deal legislation and a bunch of people retired in the 30s. When you have a court like that, if it's not dignified, maybe that adds to pressure to change it. If the court doesn't change in some fundamental way, it's just really not clear like how this is all going to play out um, across the country. Now, I mean, maybe what will happen is the court will become its own check because that has happened in previous eras when the court really threatens um, its own stability, it tends to just lose nerve in some way. And yet, you know, you see this conservative majority, they seem pretty determined so far. I mean, the test is going to be whether this Alito opinion becomes law in some way that is similar to the way it's written. That's going to be a big early test. And and that'll be knowable. I mean, what we talked about this, I think, offline last week, but it'll be so fascinating to take basically any Microsoft Word function and take the Alito opinion as it was leaked and whatever the final opinion is and have compare documents and you'll see exactly where the language was changed. Specific words, passages, areas to either sharpen it or make it softer or whatever. And that will le- that will launch 10,000 different um, dissertations. Anyway. Right. And then that's a big thing. But, you know, the sort of backdrop for this is, are we going to change the size of the court? Is Congress going to limit its powers in some other way? Um, what are the steps that are going to become imaginable to try to change what the court might do? And, you know, those conversations have been out there more among progressives than anyone else. But they also have kind of faded of late because that's just how it goes. It's really hard for Americans to focus on changing an institution. And and like all of these things are a big deal. We haven't changed the size of the court since the 1860s. Like, (laughs) yeah. But the change in the institution takes place either because one side so dominates the political sphere that they can just make it happen or because there's some group of people who feel like some protected norm has been trampled and needs to be fixed. That latter doesn't exist anymore. It's all, you know, make your own adventure now. So I don't see how the kind of reform comes about as a result of further erosion of the Supreme Court's um, standing. Um, it seems like anybody who's arguing for reform at the moment pretty easily gets slotted into the category of just being, you know, bad, you know, sour losers at the fact that the other team controls the court. Um, and so, in other words, you you which which is a bad foundation on which to make to make change if it's not if it's not broad based for that kind of a big change in American life. One final thing for you, Emily, isn't it important to make a distinction between the erosion of the court that has taken place in way like having Supreme Court Justice Thomas's wife be involved in trying to overthrow a free and fair election, which erodes the court significantly and his refusal refusal to step down from cases where that would be an issue. That's one set of issues tearing it down. And then the other is the inside game, which is the set of practices inside the building, which have been um, and so can't Thomas be correct that this, this is a grave disruption in the private thing 
without being necessarily a hypocrite for the fact that his wife is is part of what uh, I think you can make a pretty strong case as a result of undermining the court in the public sphere. I mean, I guess, sure, you can draw that wall there. It doesn't seem to me like it's a very convincing wall. Well, but aren't the traditions and distinctions of the individuals inside the wall a whole different set of issues that we know nothing about and that are, in fact, required for them to do their business? Sure. I wouldn't say we know nothing about them, but I also think that Thomas's refusal to recuse himself and just the way in which it seems like Ginny Thomas's work has permeated Thomas's thinking and thus the court itself. Like, I just don't see how that outside inside line really holds up given his own role. It would be one thing if he was being a real purist about Ginny Thomas's work. But given that he's not, I don't see how we know that she's not affecting the internal works of the court. Yeah, I guess I meant in this specific case, the, the, the breach in this specific case being distinct. But I see what you're saying. All right, Slate Plus. Catch you later.